After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord the king. When Saul looked behind, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Sam is starting to dread going to work. And the issue is with her new manager, Josh. Now, he's not particularly good at his job. 
uh, and that makes him a bit of a poor boss. So he's impulsive, he's unpredictable, and he never seems quite sure what he's doing. Sam will spend days on a task that Josh has got, him, got her to do, um, and Josh will have told her what exactly to do, but then halfway through the job, uh, Josh will change his mind and then tell her to do something else. And then all of Sam's previous work is wasted and she now has to kind of scramble around trying to find a better way to do things when the deadline is looming. Josh also has this really annoying habit. He leaves the office early because he has an appointment and he hands over the remaining work of his to Sam to do, which means that the, she then has to stay late to get it finished. So Sam feels constantly taken advantage of in her job. As she dreads going in, she finds it really stressful. But she does have an outlet, her lunch break. So she's able to get her frustration off her chest when she hangs out with her colleagues. Now her colleagues also find Josh quite irritating. And they make themselves feel better about it by moaning about him. She and her friends joke about how incompetent he is. Uh, they laugh as they consider how low the self-esteem must be of his wife who chose to marry him. Now this kind of chat is regular. They just love slagging this guy off behind his back. And on occasion, Sam will wonder, you know, hmm, is this a little bit harsh? But then such an idea is quickly dismissed. Nah, he's an idiot. He deserves it. Eddie has always had a strained relationship with his father. Growing up, it was always the older sister who got all the attention and affection. She was smarter than he is. Uh, she's a high achiever, and Eddie could never really compete with her. His dad just seemed to feel constantly disappointed with him uh, and would react to that by being controlling and harsh. Why aren't you doing this? You're doing this wrong. You should do things like this. There was always just a coldness to that relationship. And this carried on into Eddie's adult life. Everything came to a head one evening where Eddie had gone round to his parents for dinner. Now his dad was doing the routine nagging that he always does, but then he hit a bit of a sensitive spot. He made a comment about Eddie's recent breakup with his girlfriend and said it was probably due to him not having his life together or something. They had a massive row and Eddie stormed out. A few days later, Eddie realizes that his dad's birthday is coming up in a couple of months. Now, traditionally, the whole family get together. They celebrate on this day, but Eddie can't stand the thought of it. He decides to take that week, the week of the birthday, off work, and he's going to book a holiday abroad before any birthday arrangements can be made. That way, he can say he's already got plans. His dad will probably be a bit upset, but serves him right. Avi was still trying to get used to his new school. His parents moved the family out to the suburbs from the city, so his dad's business was successful. They thought they'd find a new life um, away from all the hustle and bustle. The problem was, Avi was only one of two South Asian lads in the whole school. His brown skin made him stand out, and boy did he know it. First, it was the stereotypes. Hey, Avi, why did your family move here anyway? We've got enough taxi drivers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But soon the trouble got physical. 
One day during a PE lesson, Avi was out on the field playing rugby. He didn't even have the ball, and two of the bigger lads dashed at him out of nowhere and sandwiched him, leaving him in a crumpled mess on the floor. It was clever. They'd waited until the teacher was distracted. Rugby's a contact sport. Avi had to kind of pull himself up off the ground, trying to suppress his sobs. It's still been a few weeks since that incident happened, but Avi still finds himself overcome with rage. He fantasizes about getting his own back, smacking those lads repeatedly in the face, drawing blood if he can, teaching them a lesson, anything to shock them, anything to wipe those smirks away. The reality is it'll never happen, of course, will it? I mean, those lads are simply too big and too strong. The power is always in their favor. But Avi finds some comfort in daydreaming about the idea of paying back. The desire for revenge is as old as humanity itself. And the sad reality of life on this earth is that we will experience harm at the hands of other people. And when that happens, we often feel a strong impulse to readdress that balance. And sometimes this looks like a dramatic one-off event, but sometimes it's more subtle, a kind of slow-burning pattern of behavior over time. But what does the Bible say about revenge? And given this is an impulse that all of us feel, what should we do about it? Well, this week we're carrying on our series in the life of David, and we come to an episode in David's life where he has a key opportunity to take revenge. And as we look at this story, we're going to see not only what our posture towards revenge should be, but we're going to see that the gospel strikes right at the heart of revenge in a way that affects all of us and all our identities. So firstly, let's look at David's restraint. David's restraint. Now let me recap where we're up to in the story. David is on the run. He's being chased by Saul, who is the current king of Israel, and Saul wants him dead. Now this is entirely unfair. David has been nothing but a loyal servant in Saul's court. He's served his nation well. He served his king well. But Saul is madly jealous of David. And driven by insecurity and driven by fear, Saul has tried multiple times to murder David. And so eventually it's become clear that David can't stay in the court. He's become a fugitive, always on the run, always with a looking back over his shoulder to see who's chasing him. His exile means he's in the wilderness. And at times he's even been in enemy territory. But at this point in the story, he's hiding in caves in an area called En Gedi. And he's been able to kind of pull together a ragtag bunch of men around him. We pick up the story in verse 1. Saul gets a tip-off about David's location in En Gedi. And he brings 3,000 warriors with him, an entire army, to search for this one man. And then the most bizarre coincidence happens. Look down with me at verse 3 in the Bible. So he, that Saul, came to the sheepfolds along the way... A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. So Saul has stopped for a bathroom break. 
on his search for David. And of all the caves in the area, he chooses the one cave where David and his men are hiding. Now you can imagine the tension, can't you? David and his men realize that their enemy has entered the cave. So they're trying to shush everyone, keep it quiet, don't make a move. It could be the difference between life and death. Saul, on the other hand, is oblivious. He just wants to go to the loo. He probably walked into the cave whistling. You have this surreal situation outside the cave. You've got an entire army who are ready and primed to attack David on sight. Inside, you've got a bunch of 300 men with David trying to keep as quiet as possible. And then in between them both, you've got the king of Israel with his pants down. Now, this bizarre scene offers a golden opportunity to David. Because Saul is doubly vulnerable at this point. First of all, obviously, he's going to the loo. That's fairly vulnerable. But he's also isolated. He's away from his men. This is a chance for David to strike. David could kill Saul here. Now, this must have been very tempting. He could get rid of the one who has made his life a misery. Come out of exile. He could go home. And also, if Saul dies... David would take the throne. The Lord has already told him that he is going to be king one day. So he could take that now. A tantalizing prospect, surely. If you notice down, verse 4, even his men tell him to do it. Verse 4, the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So not only do David's men tell him to bump off Saul, they reckon it's God's will that he does it. So, end of verse 4, David goes into stealth mode. He creeps up with his sword towards the unsuspecting Saul. But instead of cutting his throat, he cuts his robe, a corner of the robe, and then he presumably creeps back. David shows restraint. He spares Saul. And look at verse 5. David feels guilty just for cutting his robe. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, he says. What's going on here? Well, Saul's royal robe was, <clears throat> excuse me, was a sign of kingship. Now, according to Jewish law, every robe had to have tassels on the corners. So if you cut off a corner of someone's robe, that robe was no longer uh, in line with the requirements of the law and was therefore unwearable. But this is the royal robe. So David has just basically stopped Saul from wearing what marked him out as a ruler. It was an attack on his kingship. Now, Let's be fair. If Saul's biggest problem here is now that he's got to take his coat to Timpson's and get it repaired, he's got off pretty lightly, hasn't he? He's got off lightly. He could have died. But even so, notice David feels guilty. He's guilty about it. His conscience strikes him. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. You can imagine the shock of David's men, can't you? David, what are you thinking? This is the guy who's been making your life a living hell. This is the time to take him down. We can do it. But look at verse 7. It says, David sharply rebukes the men. In the original language, he tore into his men. David is resolved. They are not going to take matters into their own hands. 
Now, one of the coolest things about having digital TV that you can kind of pre-record is that when you watch it, you can fast forward through the adverts. Or if you're watching sports, you can kind of fast forward through the boring bits and get to the highlights. And some of us, I guess, wish we could do that with our lives, right? Fast forward through the boring bits, fast forward through the difficult things, and just go straight to the highlights. Well, David has the opportunity right here. If he kills Saul, he ends his exile and he takes the throne. But he doesn't do it. David's restraint is incredible. But what he does here is echo a principle that is throughout the whole Bible. Revenge is not an option. For the people of God, revenge is not an option. Now, I wonder what revenge looks like for you. Assuming, of course, you're not tempted to uh, murder your boss on the toilet. (laughs) Now, there are the one-off instances, aren't there? The one-off instances. But there's also the everyday gossip behind people's backs. The silent treatment. Engage in an emotional cold war with the other person. Snappy comments, even to those closest to us. And for some of us, revenge exists purely in the mind. We indulge in fantasies where we settle our scores, and some of those daydreams can be dark and violent. We must be careful. Like David, we are called to restraint. Well, okay, we've got to show restraint, but how and why can we do this? I mean, we've just said revenge is a strong human impulse. And when real evil has been committed against us, the temptation to get even is massive. How on earth are we going to not retaliate? Why shouldn't we retaliate? Well, we've seen David's restraint. Now, let's now look at David's reasons. David's reasons. Well, if David's sparing of Saul is striking, what he does next is even more so. He takes the risk of going outside the cave by himself and speaking to the man who's brought an army to kill him. What will David say? And more importantly, what will Saul do? Will he listen? Well, let's read from verse 8. Look down with me. David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. Now, just take that in for a second. Notice David's respectful posture. He calls Saul my Lord. He even calls him Father. He bows with his face to the ground. There are no insults, no snappy comebacks. But with humility, David proves that he has no ill will towards Saul. He shows the corner of the robe as definitive proof that he could have killed him but he didn't. It's proof that David has no wish to harm Saul. David, in his speech, makes it clear that he won't take revenge, but he also makes it clear why. 
why he won't take revenge. And he gives his reasons to Saul. And it's important we take note here. There are two reasons. The first is this. Revenge is evil. It's evil. Look at verse 12 to 13. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. David will not harm Saul because if he did, it would be evil to do so. Revenge is not morally justified, according to the Bible. It's evil. Now, one factor in David's restraint is that Saul is the king. So though God has rejected Saul, Saul is technically the Lord's anointed. God set him apart to be king, and David doesn't want to touch him for that reason, at least partly. But we shouldn't think that revenge is only wrong when it's committed against an important person. We should never think that there are certain people for whom it's okay if we get a bit of vengeance from them. That's not what the Bible says. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 verse 17 makes it clear, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Revenge is wrong, whoever you commit it against. Now, I think this goes against our cultural values, uh, actually. Now, sure, Western society likes to talk a good game, doesn't it, about uh, fairness and equality and peace and caring for other people. But you don't have to go very far to find the idea of revenge indulged on by the masses. It's the major plot point of many a TV show. Revenge films are their own genre. You can easily find online articles with uh, titles like 10 spurned lovers who got their own back. <laughs> we love a bit of revenge. We love it. And we may think that revenge is called for in some cases. But to do so is to overestimate the purity of our own hearts. The truth is that we are corrupt. Our motives are at best mixed, and we cannot trust ourselves to react appropriately when we seek revenge. A genuine desire for revenge may actually just be a desire to cause harm, or at least, at least mixed with that. When we take revenge, what we think of as justice can actually just be retaliation. And what we think of as rebalancing power can just be an outlet for our rage. And revenge doesn't just harm other people. It actually harms ourselves as well. So Rachel Royce was a TV presenter. Um, about 15 years ago, she had a very public split with her husband, the uh, journalist Rod Little. When she found out about his affair... She carried out a day of revenge on her husband, which culminated in ordering 10 sacks of manure and having them delivered to his office. That's where he was, and that's where his mistress worked as well. But did she feel better for it afterwards? According to one report, it left her feeling deflated and upset. Revenge will not help you It'll only make you miserable, or worse, it will just harden your heart. 
that little more, make you more bitter. You don't want that. David would not give in to such a temptation. Evil deeds come from evil doers, he says, so he will not take his revenge on Saul. So let me ask you this morning, are you seeking revenge against someone? According to the Bible, if you are, you're guilty of evil. Revenge is evil. The second reason, God is the judge. God is the judge. Look at verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Verse 15. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Now, have you ever come across that detective show cliche, right, where the detective has been trying hard to catch the criminal, maybe he's a particularly bad guy, a serial killer or something, and then finally, after all this tracking down, he spots him and a massive chase ensues. And so they're running down alleys, jumping over people's garden fences. Um, it's a long and exhausting chase, but eventually the detective comes within grasp of uh, the criminal and he grabs him and he pulls him down to the floor and in the heat of the moment, in all his frustration and anger, he kind of lifts up his fist like this. But then out of nowhere, um, the detective's um, friend or partner grabs the hand. He's like, no, don't do it. He's not worth it. Let the courts deal with him. Look, I'm not an actor, all right, but you know, just, just run with it, yeah, just run with it. Now, what's happening there? What's happening? The detective can lower his fist because he realized that it won't achieve anything if he you know, punches the living daylights out of this guy. He's guilty, and the court will have the final say. The judge will make the pronouncement. And David's logic is similar here. David doesn't have to take revenge because ultimately the case is going to a higher authority. God is the judge. He is the one who has the final say. He is the one who settles scores. A central truth of the Bible is that a day is coming when we will all stand before God at the end of time. And he will judge the living and the dead according to our deeds. Friend, you and I are going to be somewhere in a hundred years' time in a thousand years' time, in a billion years' time, and where we will be will depend on what happens on that judgment day. And on that day, there will be no miscarriage of justice. No one who is guilty will go free. No one will be able to get off on a technicality because they hired a hotshot lawyer to defend them. God sees all, he knows all, and he will judge perfectly. Now, in many ways, that is a sobering thought. But for someone who has been wronged, that is a comfort. Isn't it awful when you suffer at the hands of someone and it just feels like they get away with it? Justice doesn't seem to be done. You can feel like nothing happens. The world keeps turning and people just get away with stuff. It won't always be the case. At the end of time, God will judge. And for a Christian, that means that you can let go of your revenge. God will judge, and he will do it much better than we can. But this raises a question, doesn't it? What about when you've been wronged by a Christian? 
they won't face any judgment or penalty for what they've done on the final day. God has forgiven them. Conveniently, they get off scot-free. And that may compound the pain that you're feeling. Well, yes, Christians have been forgiven. There is no condemnation for them now in Christ Jesus. They will not face the judgment for their sins. But justice has been done. The judgment of the sins of Christians has fallen on Jesus Christ. In his death, he took the punishment we deserve in our place. But listen, this does not make light of the harm that has been done to you. It is not to add insult to injury. In fact, it shows how much of a big deal that harm is. One writer puts it like this. Christianity takes the sin against us so seriously that in order to make them right, God gave his own son to suffer more than we could ever make anyone else suffer for what they've done to us. God does not consider the wrongs done to you as trivial. On the contrary, his son had to die in order to pay for them. Now that should give us comfort. But if you still feel indignant, if you're still upset that the Christian gets away with what they've done to you, and let's be real here, okay, we might be talking about your best friend, we might be talking about your parent or your spouse. Just remember, the forgiveness that they have received is forgiveness that you've also received. Which takes us to our final point. We've seen David's restraint, we've seen his reasons, and now we see Saul's response. So David's reasons get us halfway there to combating revenge, halfway there. But there's something more that we need to understand. You see, it's not enough to know that vengeance is wrong. It's not enough even to know that God is judge. We need something even more powerful. And the Christian faith provides the ultimate resource to deal with vengeance and free us from that life. And in order to see this, we have to kind of shift perspective, change camera angles to go from David in our story to Saul. So how is Saul going to respond to David's speech? Well, just look at verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Isn't that remarkable? David's words have had an impact. Prior to this, you could picture Saul as kind of frothing at the mouth at the idea of uh, getting David within his kind of grasp, seeing him dead. And yet now his entire posture has shifted. Now we should be cautious here. The scenes of this chapter basically repeat themselves a couple of chapters later. Saul does not permanently relent or repent. Um, after a while, his anger returns and he wants to hunt David again. So any repentance we see here must be seen as superficial. However, David's words do change the situation. They transform it. And I think we can learn from Saul's response. Now, just look at Saul's words in verse 17 to verse 18. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. It's confession time for Saul. And he admits his treatment of David has been wrong. And he even says that David is the better man. 
Now, how can Saul change like this? Well, the truth is, what David has done has completely disarmed him. David has taken what would be expected in that situation, and he's completely turned it upside down. You can almost feel the shock in Saul's words, can't you? Look at verse 19. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? And he has a point. The Near East, the ancient Near East, was a warrior culture. If you had been wronged like David had been wronged, and you had an opportunity not just to take revenge, but to take the throne, there's absolutely no way that you wouldn't take that revenge. There's just no way. Anyone, in a, anyone else would have gone straight for Saul's throat in that cave. It's an absolute no-brainer. But David, against all odds, has spared Saul's life, and it's kind of blown his mind. He hasn't got any categories to understand what's just happened. And it doesn't stop there either. Look at verse 20. I, <clears throat> I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Okay, right. So who are you and what have you done with Saul? Because this is just completely, completely different, unexpected. Saul is now conceding that the throne will be David's. He's not done that before. He admits it. And then even more, Saul asks for mercy Verse 21, now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now there was a, another ancient Near Eastern custom where if you were a new king and you kind of wrestled power from the old king, you would execute all the relatives of the old king. You'd kill them off completely it would lower the risk of competition. Now, David has already promised to Jonathan that he won't kill off Saul's family. Jonathan is Saul's son. But here again, he makes an oath. And so Saul gets the mercy that he's asking for. So we have all from David's refusal to take revenge. It's resulted in this extraordinary outcome. Extraordinary. And it's here that we see a picture of the gospel so like so many times in this series, we must realize that David in the story isn't really a picture of us. He's a picture of his greater descendant, the Lord Jesus. And like David, Jesus Christ was not vengeful. Just think about Jesus' final days. On his way to his crucifixion, he was beaten and mocked. He was spat at. He was nailed to a cross nailed to a cross. But rather than curse his enemies, he said, Father, forgive them. But there's more. There's layers to that. Why was Jesus even there in the first place? Well, he was there because of us. He gave himself up to die so that he could take on himself the punishment for our sins, all our anger, all our selfishness, yes, all of our revenge, our sins put him there. October the 31st was Halloween, but it was also Reformation Day, which reminds us of uh, the day when the reformer Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses um, to the door of a church in Wittenberg in protest against the Roman Catholic Church. And Martin Luther had some amazing things to say about the cross and the gospel. And one of the things he said was this, we... We all carry the very nails of the cross in our pocket. 
We have Jesus' very nails in our pockets. We carry them. It's our sin that put Jesus on that cross. Now, we could have faced the punishment for our sins ourselves. We could, we could have faced them. And you know, if we face them, if God punished us, it would be more than petty revenge. If God punished us, it would be justice, nothing less. But we haven't received that punishment. Jesus took it on himself out of love for us. Now, we don't live in David's time, do we? But the principle of verse 19 still stands, doesn't it? When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? It's still true today. Who doesn't relish a bit of revenge if they get the opportunity? Who wouldn't do it? And yet, we were the enemies of Christ, and he let himself be harmed rather than see us harmed. Now, this is just the old, old story of the gospel. But when you grasp it, like for Saul, it can bring tears to your eyes. When we see that love, we find Saul's words in verse 17 on our lips. Lord Jesus, you are more righteous than I am. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. And like Saul, we can find mercy where we deserve none. Now, when we grasp that, it disarms us when we want to take vengeance. And I think disarm is a good word, isn't it? Because when someone hurts us, we arm ourselves for revenge, don't we? It's like, you hurt me? Right, it's on, it's on. But the gospel disarms us. It shows us that we are not just victims, we're actually perpetrators as well. And yet, we are shown grace and love by the Lord Jesus. And when we grasp how Jesus has treated us, it helps us fight our vengeful impulses. It means that we can put our weapons down. Look, I don't know all the harm that's been suffered by people in this room this morning. I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know all your pain. I don't know what you've had to deal with because of what other people have done to you. I, I have no idea. And, and some of those things may be grievous. And sure, desires for revenge and bitterness may be bubbling up inside of you. But Christian friends, please listen to me. Your sins have hurt Christ far more than anyone has ever harmed you. Our sins put him on the cross. He received the wrath of his father for us. And yet he forgave us. Now, such a love, a love like that, it gives us humility, doesn't it? The self-righteousness that comes with being hurt, it dissolves in light of the gospel. You can't feel superior to someone if you know Jesus had to die to save you. But such a love also gives us a joy and confidence that enables us to extend forgiveness to others. If Jesus forgave us, then we can renounce vengeance. We can even forgive those who've wronged us. Some of you will be entertaining vengeful thoughts at this season of life. You might have even acted on them. You may have armed yourself for revenge. Friend, now is the time to put those weapons down. Revenge is wrong. It's evil, according to the Bible. It harms us, and it harms others. God is the judge. 
It's his prerogative to settle scores. But we've also received forgiveness from Jesus for the wrongs that we've committed. Now may that affect us as it did Saul here. May we admit our evil and ask for mercy. And if we do, we'll find it in the Lord Jesus. Shall we pray?